You know, I think organizations are the best shot we have to create the change we want to see in the world. I think they are the best shot that we have to solve society's greatest challenges, you know, to cause the systemic shifts in culture and leadership that we're all going for. And I think that entrepreneurs in particular inside of these high growth startups are, are hardwired to cause this to happen. That was Stephen Belenke, who describes himself as a team interventionist and executive coach. Throughout his career, Stephen has provided leadership coaching across a wide variety of companies and industries, and knows what it takes to get your team out of a slump. He has spent his life helping improve performance and develop leadership skills at the individual, team, and enterprise levels. He coaches everyone from the entry level all the way up to the C-suite on how to be the absolute best they can be. And with a wide range of personal experience, from serving in the Israeli military to founding his own company, Stephen can relate to it all. At the core of his work, Stephen pushes people to reach their potential and exceed their own expectations. And he strives to help leaders rise to the occasion in the most pivotal moments, when they have the chance to make the biggest impact on the life of their business. And since we're all coming off an unprecedented year that turned our lives and our businesses upside down, let's dive in and find out how Stephen can help you do the same. Welcome to Incredible Learning Experiences, a show about stories from the cutting edge of learning and professional development. On today's episode, we talk with Stephen Belenke about how to make your teams more effective, the secret to educating CEOs, and how to coach people to achieve things they didn't even know were possible. Incredible Learning Experiences is brought to you by your friends at ProctorFree, an on-demand, convenient, and cost-effective online proctoring solution for education and corporate environments. Elevate your credibility and reputation while providing convenient learning opportunities for your target audience. Learn more at proctorfree.com. And now here's your host, Mike Murphy. This is Mike Murphy, the host of Incredible Learning Experiences, and we're joined today by Stephen Belenke. Stephen, can you introduce yourself so the audience can hear your voice? Yep, this is Stephen Belenke. All right. Where are you sitting today? (laughs) I am... I, I'm assuming you're referring to my wavy doors uh, behind me. Yes. Yes. You have wavy doors behind I you. Am, what you can't see is beautiful window to the left, beautiful windows. I'm at my home. I can see into my backyard. It's very lush with trees. And behind me are these black wavy barn doors that my wife and I inherited when we bought this house. Wow. That we are trying to, we're trying to embrace. Now, somebody recently said, Stephen, is that intentional? Like, it looks like an S. And the answer is yes. <laughs> it was I've never seen barn doors that look like that. So don't get rid of them. They're funky. And I, I like it. Awesome. My confidence is skyrocketing. <laughs> and so where are you located? What city are you in? Uh, we're in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, and we are in East Charlotte, Eastside Pride. And who are you? What, what do you do professionally? Jeez, who am I? I'm going to go for the, the hardball question first. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to start. I'm going to start personal. I'm a, I'm a devoted partner to my, to my wife, Rachel, and a son to a mother and father and youngest brother of three uh, boys and uh, an uncle to two amazing nieces. I'm also uh, an advocate uh, for uh, living trauma and grief out loud. Happy to talk more about that. I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I'm a disciplined listener and a practitioner of asking meaningful questions. And I'm really passionate about conversations and making them really count. That's who I am. But you want to know what I do professionally? I, I love all of that. And we're going to get, I'm going to circle back to a couple of things. But yes, what do you do professionally? I'm in the leadership development space. I, I intervene with leaders and leadership teams that are looking to have a breakthrough in their performance, a breakthrough in their collaboration and their communication at a critical juncture. And so what I mean by that is it could be a, a merger, it could be an acquisition, it could be the launching of a new product uh, or the completion of a key round of fundraising. I work with them at that key juncture to bring to bring something special to the table at a time where it couldn't be any more critical. When you say intervene, does that mean something negative might happen? Like what? why intervene? Yeah, it, that's a really, it's a really great question. Not necessarily negative. Usually it's a, you know, I say that the, the, an event needs to happen for me to come in. Mm-hmm. It could be negative, could be the loss of a, an important investor. 
or it could be, you know, there's there's fifty there's fifty million dollars in investment sitting on the table, and this team is trying to mitigate unforced errors uh, between now and the time that they close on that fundraising round. So it could be an incredible opportunity. That's pretty serious stuff. So who decides to reach out to you? Is it someone that you're intervening on behalf of? Like when something serious is going to happen and you can contribute, like who who grabs you and pulls you in? Yeah, well, in my business is it's a it's a referral it's a referral bit uh, business. I work with one team, and and typically they and and it's a small community of especially especially in the the high growth startup space. You know, founders, CEOs, they talk and they share war stories, and uh, and so I'll work with one, and you know, somebody will share uh, with another what's going on and what they're up against, and they'll say, you know, you really need to talk to Stephen and. See if there's some there's something to accomplish with your team and how they collaborate and communicate. And that's how it that's that's how it comes to be. And then we get talking about outcomes and and I see if uh, I see if I can can make a difference with the outcomes they're going for. Okay. And then why do you do this? Yeah. So I'm gonna get I'm gonna get kind of meta about this. I should stress that you know I work with all kinds of organizations, including institutions, but but my focus is high growth startups. And then inside of that, I've got a real passion for social impact organizations. And that includes Israeli-backed startups, U.S. veteran-backed um, startups, among others. Why I do what I do, you know, I think organizations are the best shot we have to create the change we want to see in the world. I think they are the best shot that we have to solve society's greatest challenges, you know, to cause the systemic shifts in culture and leadership that we're all going for. And I think that entrepreneurs in particular inside of these high growth startups are, are hardwired to cause this to happen. And what I find when I talk to organizations that want to generate a profit and change the world, they've got the strategy, they've got the process, where they're, where they're lacking is in the attitude and behavior department, otherwise known as culture. And that's where that's where I can make the biggest difference. Fantastic responses. That was our opening. We're going to transition into the roadmap. Wait a minute. You knew where we are, Brian. Are we lost? I need a roadmap. Yes, we have a roadmap in place. Can you give us an example of a person or an organization you have worked with? Like, what would their titles be? I work with a number of technology startups. Including, and I won't, I won't name the company because of the sensitive nature of the work we do. But, but I can say that, that includes okay. a, a household, a household brand name in the uh, kind of CRM, you know, CRM customer relationship management space. And I work with C-suite executives and the senior management teams that they're accountable for. So, chief growth officers, CEOs, CMOs, you name it. So, actually, what now? I need to rephrase this question. It was would do people think when they see you enter their organization? So did you used to physically go into like offices and like, what was that like when you walk in and you probably know them, but like you just walk in the building, like what, what, what are people thinking? Do you mean, you mean physically? <laughs> yeah. Like, who is this, well, this person, who is this guy? something, yeah, <laughs> something might be happening. They either know or don't know about it. And now you show up, like what, what do they think when, when you enter their organization? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. I, they might think I'm there to change them or help them figure out who they are. And neither is true. I'm not there to tell them who they are. They know who they are. And I'm certainly not there to have them shut down their weaknesses. You know, a lot of, a lot of folks relate to, to people like me as coming in to put to bed their weaknesses. And I think people's weaknesses are their strengths. Sometimes we overplay our strengths, so they appear as weaknesses. So I'm certainly not here to get rid of people's strengths. What I am there to do is to help, is to create a space for them to be more effective, to look at to look and see where their strengths are working for them, and where their strengths are overplayed, where they're getting in the way of 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 you know making something really happen. So there's their perception, and then there's a lot of work that I got to do on the front end to earn their trust and to clarify why I'm there. So when you're doing this, are you? primarily focusing on a small group or maybe one person, or do you have to navigate like layers and personalities within an organization? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely do. I make the biggest difference when I'm working with teams. That's not to say that I, you know, there are cases where I'll start working with the CEO 
the CEO has a breakthrough and they will say, you need to come work with my team. So sometimes it works that way. I think I make the bigger difference where I have a chance to get um, to get my hands on a, a C-suite team and a senior management team that they're accountable for because we're, we're creating new habits. We're creating new processes. We're creating new behaviors. You work with one person, they're, they're a fish out of water when we throw them back into the sea. You know, people, people don't know what to make of this person and their new ways of making requests and making commitments and making promises. But you work with a team, you teach them all a new language. So we're going to be a lot more successful if, if we do this work with the team from the onset. But I absolutely have to navigate these layers and, and multiple personalities. And I do it by taking responsibility for myself. I take responsibility for how I come across. If they experience me as, as being competent, reliable, and sincere, I'm going to make a difference there. If you were to go into a like a, a social gathering, do you just watch people? Yeah, uh, I yes, yes I do, and and I don't judge them. Okay, I don't judge them. I um, I go into a room, I observe. I'm extremely curious. I have an, an insatiable appetite for kind of watching and observing people, and I also create stories in my head. When I'm observing in a room, I create stories about people I don't know, but not, but not like imp- disempowering stories. I create empowering stories about people. And I also create stories that enable me to empathize with people because that's my, that's my access, you know, to connecting with people that I wouldn't otherwise be able to connect with people that come from different walks of life. The thing that that enables me to connect with everybody is I'll create a story in my mind that they are dealing with something out there in the world, some invisible, some invisible challenge. They're dealing with grief, they're dealing with trauma, and that's my um, that's my access to people. How can an organization change? Does it like do, do the people have to change? Does like half of the people have to change? How does change happen? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't I don't know if everybody wants to change. You know, I think I think some people do, some people don't. I, I and I take the case that they all do. I take the case that people want to change. Otherwise, I can't fight for them. I can't, I can't root for them. You know, if I'm cynical, I can't, I can't fight for people. So, you know, I take, I, I take the case that people do want to change, and I take responsibility for them seeing a business case to want to change. Like I said before, you know, it's usually an event that brings me to the table. And so they've really got to get in their bones the consequences of not changing. And I take responsibility for creating a space with my clients for them to see those consequences and to want to and to want to take it on, take it on for themselves. Yeah. And, and can you tell at a certain point where you're like, this isn't going to work? Or this is going to work? Is it like day three or after a certain amount of hours or after an incident or an event? Is there like a, a time where you're like, this isn't happening or this is definitely happening? Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to, to paraphrase, but I think what you're asking is, are, are some people and teams not coachable? And I, I generally don't believe that. I, I generally believe that everybody can can make the change that they want to make. And it takes time. I mean, I'm 41, I'm 41 years old now. And I think it was like age 39 and 40 when I finally felt like I was living into the person that I, I knew and wanted to be. So three days, I mean, no, give me a break. This is how I know that they want to change. Like, this is how I know they've crossed over into wanting it, whether they've got the capacity to do it or not. I know they want it because I, because I'm observing their actions, you know, talk is, talk is cheap. Right. And, and I get a lot of stories. People tell me a lot of stories and I'm not evaluating them based on their stories. I'm evaluating their actions. I look at, I look at are the actions a match for the changes that they want to make? It's like, um, like, how do I know, how do I know when I want to meet somebody? Like I, I meet somebody for the first time how do I know they actually want to meet with me again? They don't let me get off the call until we've ske- scheduled another occasion to meet. That's an action. 
Like that action tells me something as opposed to, yeah, Stephen, I'd love to reconnect with you. And then it just kind of goes out of existence. <laughs> you know? So, so yeah, I, that's, that's my, um, uh, you know, that's my barometer for change. I look, I look at their actions. So before we get off this interview today, I know that I need to schedule a, another call with you. Absolutely. Otherwise, I'm going to make up a story about you that uh, is not flattering. <laughs> so we're going to transition into a segment called Learn and Success. The success. It was a huge success. We did it! Victory! Success. He smells like success. Is there anything that you've found or implemented in the last couple of years that have changed outcomes for how, when you're interacting with people? Yeah, I, I have been doing a lot of work. I've been doing, I've been putting a lot of energy lately into meetings, effective meetings, which is a, which is a really hot topic, right? Like you can Google effective meetings and there's like a thousand articles out there. And that's her, that's hyperbole, right? A thousand articles. And, and I'm equally passionate about it. And I'm hyper focused on how a team can produce meaningful outcomes in the face of any circumstance in any meeting. So anything from creating a context for that meeting, like how can a leader create a context for, um, for their team to how do you establish trust and psychological safety in a meeting to get the most out of people so that they can bring their, um, what's the, what's the popular phrase so they can bring their whole selves or at least 80%, 80% of themselves to helping leaders make sense of what's being said and not being said in a meeting. So they can take an inventory of the promises and commitments that are being made and they can like exponentially increase the number of commitments being made and the actions being taken. So that is something I have created lately and put into practice and I'm seeing some really positive, positive results. I mean, I'd say like a, a connective tissue or a common theme is my clients are having less meetings and they're having shorter meetings and engagement is up, participation is up, decisions being made and actions being taken have increased exponentially. Well, you've jumped ahead. So I was going to ask you, what is a way to measure success around that? And it sounds less meetings, shorter meetings, more engagement. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, yeah, that's definitely one example. I mean, I, you're going to have to write the uh, 1001 article, uh, article number <laughs> 1001 on uh, how to have effective meetings. Or, or I'll just do more talking to you. One, one of the two. <laughs> no, no, I mean, my, my metrics are, they're outcome based and they're my, my outcomes are my clients' outcomes. Yeah. I'm going, I'm going for whatever they're going for, at least, at least if I know I can affect their outcomes. I mean, there are outcomes my clients are going for that I have no business getting involved in. But if, you know, going back to something I said earlier, if my client says to me, I want to mitigate unforced errors in the next, in the next 30 days because we're about to roll out a product, that's an outcome. That's an outcome that I can mitigate. And if there were no unforced errors, then, you know, then we've, you know, we, we were successful. Or if, you know, if a, a founders, investors and board members tell them, that they really appreciated their collaboration and communication with them, that it was at an all-time high, that is a great go-for. That's a great success story. And that's something I can affect as well. But you all investors would appreciate that. <laughs> I, think, I think so. I talked to a lot of them and yeah. that's something they're going for, for sure. I, this is a, a little bit off topic, but when I think about engagement and outcomes and meetings, I had like 13 Zooms yesterday and by the 11th or 12th Zoom, I'm try, I try to be courteous and respond to people's messages. You know, everyone gets a lot of solicitations and it might just be sometimes a polite unsubscribe, but this group was hounding me. So they were, I was like, fine, we'll have a 30 minute call because you're trying to do your job. And um, by the time I got on the call, I was fatigued and I gave them my full attention and it was so painful because I th they were reading from a script. They were prepared, but they were definitely on a script. And at any time I tried to break the wall, and like have a meaningful interaction with them, it would like, it would catch them off guard and they would go back to the script. And then I was just honest. I was like, maybe in a year or two, like if I'm still here, we could work together. And even that led them back to a script. But so if what you're, what you're creating for your clients around effective meetings, 
I, I would love it if sales teams and organizations could, could, I know it's so numbers driven, right? You know, you have a certain amount of engagement that's going to happen if you have a thousand outbound solicitations, but even if they had just had more meaningful engagements with people that are decision makers and buyers, instead of just, I got to run through my script. My boss is probably listening to this Yes, because yeah. it's a conversation and it's relationship building. Absolutely. And oh, I'm just, um, something you said, you said, uh, I kept, I kept trying, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. So tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but I kept trying to intervene with their flow and I was unsuccessful. And yeah, I'm just breaking the wall down. Like I'm ready to just talk to you, you know, and it's just like, nope, (laughs) I don't want to talk. I want to read this script. You know, if I've learned, if I've learned anything about my work in the last couple of years, it's that none of, none of it is intuitive. So, for example, trying to intervene effectively in that, what you just described, which I would describe as a breakdown. Like there is a, there's a breakdown happening here because they're so focused on their agenda that they're stepping over something really important, which is the relationship. Like step, they're stepping over the thing that's going to help the two of, that's going to help you connect in a really meaningful way. And, and so intervening with that, it, it's not intuitive. I mean, it's, it's something, it's something to learn. It's something to, you design a practice. Like, how do I intervene with that? You try something, you evaluate it, you you know, you evaluate what worked, what didn't work, you refine it, and then you try it again. And then, and then the other thing I would say about it is, so there's what they, you know, there's, there's your wish that they would do this kind of work, but you can also take responsibility for intervening more effectively too. You can keep trying new practices to intervene with that. I mean, I had a conversation, I had a conversation with um, somebody that I'm not coaching, I'm actually mentoring her. And she's trying to, she's trying to get more effective. She's an entrepreneur, absolutely brilliant. And one of the areas where she is still kind of developing herself in is connecting with investors. Like she'll have these one-on-one meetings with investors and they go to, they want to go directly to her pitch deck. Like, well, just show us your pitch deck. And what she's discovering is that if they make a connection with her and they believe in her and they are inspired by her, they'll, they'll make the pitch deck for her. They'll, they'll, they'll create the pitch deck for her, but she's having trouble intervening with that on the front end. They want to, they're, they're all business. They want to get to business. So she's trying to figure out, how does she how does she say wait a second folks i i can't wait to show you my pitch deck and i can't wait to show you my spreadsheet <laughs> and and yeah where are you right now like i'm talking to you i see something in the background like where are you tell me like where in the world are you yeah are you at your home where do you live who are you where you know where were you born mm-hmm. so she's practicing uh, she's practicing not allowing the people in the room to step over the relationship it's it's a it's a powerful move. Yeah, it's like it's 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 comical to think that there's people that want to see a PowerPoint presentation that bad. <laughs> I, I get it, right? But no, really, really, it's all about relationships. Can you tell me a, a story from your career that involved conflict or tension? Like every day. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, well, you know, I, I worked with another consulting firm in this space before I, I ventured out on my own and started my own practice. And, you know, I'm really grateful for the opportunity I had with them. I was grateful to serve with them and serve through them. And I was grateful for the coaching and mentorship and, and the training they provided me. Um, they're also fundamentally good people. That means a lot to me. And we didn't agree on everything, um, including, you know, how to, how to effectively coach and consult. It was, there was one particular area where there was a rub between me and my colleagues there. And it was around this idea of, not an idea, it's the practice of public coaching. Said another way, you're working with a group of people. Let's say it's a C-suite. Let's just say a chief growth officer reveals something. And you as a coach decide to lean into that person in front of everybody else. That's public coaching. And that can go one of two ways. Either that can make a huge difference with them, or it can completely annihilate their self-worth and self-confidence. And one of the things that I, um, 
I have become very skilled and experienced at, and I have gained an appreciation for, is people have different learning and developmental capacities, preferences. I'm partially talking about neurodiversity. I mean, you never know what you're dealing with with people. You don't know what's going on in the background. You don't know how they're hardwired. So it's really on me as a coach to decide, do I lean into this person in this moment? Or do I take this offline, one-on-one with this individual? And and I think that's where there was a little rub with um, with my colleagues there. I'm putting words in their mouth, but I think they they kind of they took the case that public coaching was effective. Like generally speaking, it's effective, and I could see where public coaching can can get. Um, can, can have a, a you know, a, a poor effect on people. And so, look, I mean, I had two choices to make. One was, it was either to stay with the firm and be a cause for the, a change in the way that they consult, or I could get that by changing this thing about them, I would be changing like at its core, how they consult. And so I made the decision to leave and I'm so grateful for that experience. I, you know, there's a, there's a great saying, like the, the, the greatest learning you can, you can have is learning what you don't want to do. <laughs> and so this was one of those beautiful moments where I discovered how I didn't want to coach and consult. And it inspired me to start asking questions like, well, if I were to create my own methodology, if I were to create my own way of being a coach and a consultant in this leadership development space, what would that look like? And if I were to really take responsibility for people's different ways of learning, what would that look like? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm great. It was, it was difficult and I'm grateful for those moments. Those are the best learning moments. Can someone learn to do what you do without those moments? Like, is that how you learn how to do what you do? They can absolutely. I mean, yes. And I think that's my superpower. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think the people who do what I do effectively, um, it, it's a combination of like, like a lot of things. It's a combination of training, getting great training, getting great coaching, getting great mentorship and, and getting great on the job experience. So it's, it's all of those things. And I think what gives me an edge is I am very aware of all the setbacks that I've had. And I study my setbacks, like, rig- like rigorously. <laughs> and I'm not even sure it's a choice because I, I feel it. I never forget these moments. And, and it's a laboratory. It's a laboratory for me. So yeah, what I would say to anybody who's looking to get into this space, surround yourself with all the things I just said, the coaching and the training and the mentorship and the on-the-job experience. And cherish the things that didn't go well. Cherish the things that you see. Um, cherish your own breakdowns and cherish the moments where you see the people around you being less than effective and build off of that. That's what I've done. I mean, this, I'm, I'm on my second professional services business and both, and in both cases, I worked for another consulting firm. You know, I learned their way. And I saw in that experience a little bit of what I wanted to do and a whole lot of what I didn't want to do. And I give them credit for that. You know, to this day, I thank, I thank those people who took me on and, and mentored me and gave me an opportunity to see, to see my own path inside of theirs. Can we talk about the future? No. (laughs) (laughs) I see the future. Is this what the future holds? That's the future. Fascinating modern age we live in. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the future. What do you think uh, is going to be a trend in your industry over the next few years? Can I give you a few? Because I, I just can't, I can't get it down to one. Yeah. So I'm going to cheat. Okay. I think a good place to start is, I mean, it's, it's this whole flattening of hierarchical leadership. You know, it's the, the, the days of, the days of hero leadership, you know, the, the one or several all knowing, all solutions, all the time leaders, you know, and their way of, um, and their way of leading and, and having it kind of trickle down in a hierarchical way. Like that's, that's behind us. What we're seeing now is 
collaborative leadership. We're seeing cross-functional environments, and that's the new normal. And, and so I think the question is, as a company, how do you recruit and retain people? You know, when, when all companies are kind of moving in this direction, more collaborative leadership, how do you recruit and retain, you know, great people? And how do you separate yourself from other companies? And, and I think you do it by like really owning how are we giving our people, how are we giving our leaders a sense of purpose? How are we giving them a sense of autonomy? And how are we giving them the opportunity? And I think this is like really key. How are we giving leaders the opportunity to master things? I mean, I can't tell you how many times my wife will say to me something like, I mean, she's very, very grateful for her team and where she works, but she is just, she's just so caught up in the minutia of things. She's like, I just want to have time in the day where I can pull away from my work and master something. And, I, and I'm hearing that more and more from like emerging leaders. That's one. That's one. I think the, uh, another one, which is really, really exciting is the integration of leadership development and DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives. Right now, right now, and this is my, um, my perception of things is that these two initiatives are not living together. They're almost like mutually exclusive. I'll, I'll go to an organization and like leadership development lives over here. And then they've got this, this new amazing DEI person who's overseeing the initiative and the two haven't been integrated yet. And, and so I think that's a trend. I think what we're going to see is the integration of the two. And I'm really excited to not just watch it, but I want to, I want to be a part of it. So that's, that's another one. That's a really interesting point. That seems like if if DEI and leadership is in the same room, then that that's when like a meaningful like strategic human resource planning can occur because that's the future of the workforce. Absolutely. And so everything you just said and my theory is that it's the social impact organizations. The for-profit zebras of the world. You know, like equally, equally committed to solving societal problems as they are generating revenue, generating a profit. They're the ones who are going to like execute this more effectively than anyone. So that's, I'd say that's like my third, that's the third trend that I'm, I'm, I'm actively intervening with. It's this wide and far reaching spread of, of the social impact business model. Like right now, and I'm getting really meta, so thank you for just letting me go there. No, go. Go for it, yeah. I mean, right, right now, you have social impact organizations, and then you have performative social impact organizations. What's the difference? Well, I mean, the difference is one organization is, is leaning into it, not only from a strategic standpoint and a process standpoint, but their, their culture internally is a match for what they want to see happen in the world. And a, a colleague of mine uh, once gave me this great um, image. It's the not the values on the walls, but the values in the halls. <laughs> you know, it's like anybody. I love that. I love that. <laughs> like, and, and I think it was a colleague from this leadership development firm I was with. I think she said it. Yeah, and so it's the idea that like every company can post these values on their website, but how do you lean into those values? So, so yeah, I mean, my theory is. And this is what I'm really, really excited about. It's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I, I see a future where all for-profit businesses are true social impact organizations, which, by the way, is, is going to make nonprofits and B corporations totally obsolete. It's going to put them out of business, and, right, and rightfully so. And then we're going to have to take all that great talent from the nonprofits and the B corporations and then, and then incorporate them in these for-profit social impact organizations. And so, and my role in this, my role in this is, like I said before, these, most organizations have the strategy, they got the process. What they don't have down is, what does it look like from a behavior? What does it look like from an attitude standpoint to be a social impact organization? How do we live our values? That's where I can make the biggest difference. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to check back in with you in 2030 and we're going to, we're going to play this and rehash it. I want to go into just some, some quick questions. Who was your favorite teacher? Oh my God. Uh, it's going to sound like I'm trying to get uh, brownie points here. Um, it, it's my mom. <laughs> it's my mom. Yeah. Um, Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. You know, the, the time I spent with her when she was, uh, when she was battling and, and ultimately losing her battle with cancer back in 2017, 
that was that was an incredible learning time for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just I was just soaking up wisdom in the three months that it was a it was a really quick uh, it was a really quick demise on her point on her part. But but boy did I soak up a lot of wisdom. And you know, frankly, I don't recall my teachers and learning for that matter before the age of twenty. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, there's, and there's actually an explanation for it that I, that I now, I now know because I experienced a trauma when I was 20 years old. Okay. So anybody, anybody who's experienced um, a major trauma can probably relate with this. I have trouble connecting with a lot of my life before the age of 20, let alone like trying to remember teachers and things that I learned. So there's, there's a, pra- there, there is a practical explanation for me not like remembering a lot. And I'm like my my appetite for learning in in the second half of my life is just exponentially higher. Like I, I am uh, my appetite for learning is jacked up. It's dialed up to 10 right now. Like I've never never craved learning uh like this before. There's a little bit of that too. <laughs> so, so yeah, sorry teachers, I'm sure you made a big difference on me. I can't remember you. You were pre you were pre-trauma. <laughs> I really appreciate your willingness to share that, you know, as a, as an aside, yeah. when I think about how scary cancer is, it's amazing that so many people have that in common, that cancer has affected them. Um, it's, it's just wild. Why do you think I wanted to talk to you? Oh man. Uh, well, I, I, I hope, I hope, you know, some of my, my passion for what I do, you know, kind of rubs off. Um, I always hope that because I, you know, I have trouble dialing back the passion. <laughs> so people, yeah, people have to be subjected to it. So I hope a little bit of that rubs off. I really, it, it is a lifestyle, what I do. I don't turn it off. It's 24 seven. I, I suspect that you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Israel as well. well. Well, not just that, but I see a fire inside of you. And so I do believe you're an agent for change. So anyone listening to this, you're going to get Steven's contact info a couple different times, but that's why I wanted to talk to you. Cause I, there's something inside of you. It's like, it's, there's something burning there. And I, and I love that. And it just, it, it comes out when people engage with you. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. This is not a way that I have always been. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I make that point because, I mean, because of the question you asked earlier, you know, you asked if some people aren't coachable and I imagine there's somebody out there in the world who had a story about me that was along those lines. This is somebody who has no idea what it's like to be around him, which is probably true. There's, a, there's another great saying, you're the only person, you're, you're the least qualified person to know what it's like to be around you. Awesome. <laughs> it's so true. Like Mike, you yeah. know, you know more about what it's like to be around me than I know. <laughs> so, but, yeah. but I imagine somebody had a story about me that was something along the lines of this guy is not coachable and you know, it, it's not intuitive. You know, you've got to, it starts with an event. Something's got to happen that makes you want to be more self-aware and more aware of other human beings. Mm-hmm. And then you got to make a commitment to take it on. And then comes the whole practice, creating behaviors, creating practices part. You know, it's, it's not a, it's not, it's not just a mindset. Like you gotta, you gotta go to the whiteboard and create behaviors. And then those behaviors become like muscle memory, you know, you practice, practice, practice. And so this is not a way I've, I've wound up being, it's a way I said I wanted to be, I made commitments to be, and you know, now I I wake up and I'm jacked up. (laughs) What, what books are you reading right now? So I'm always reading a few books simultaneously. I think on a sub- not on a conscious level, but on a subconscious level, I'm always my books are a reflection of what I'm curious about, obviously, uh, what I'm working on, and what I'm dealing with. So on the on the what am I working on front? Um, I'm building a new practice. So I'm reading a book called Small Giants: Companies That Choose to Be Great Instead of Big. I want, I want to build not necessarily a big organization, but I want to build a great organization. That's what I'm working on. Uh, what I'm curious about is Startup Nation. So I'm reading Startup Nation, the story of Israel's economic miracle. Um, I am really curious about, um, Israeli backed, uh, startups and the whole Israeli ecosystem because I have a connection to Israel. 
And then what I'm dealing with, uh, I'm reading The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. I am, I am always living with my trauma. I'm always living with grief. And this book is a really powerful tool in how to live with it. I don't relate to these things as disabilities. They, um, let's, let's put it this way. My, my trauma does not uh, disable me. It enables me. And this, this you made a comment earlier that you believe weaknesses can be str- someone's strengths. And that's interesting. You've, you've referenced yeah. trauma a couple of times. And um, it, it, is that where that comment earlier came from? Yeah, maybe. I was with a, man, I was with a former client the other day. We were reconnecting and we were taking a, we, were, we went on a walk and he said something that I thought was, it was so beautiful. And I think it, 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 it hits on what I'm trying to get at here. He said, uh, he was talking about his partner, his partner in life. And he said, why would I want to get rid of my partner's weaknesses? My partner's weaknesses, or no, no, no. He said, yeah, something like that. Why would I want to get rid of my partner's weaknesses? Uh, his weaknesses are his strengths and I love his strengths. So if I were to get rid of his weaknesses, I'd be getting rid of what I love about him. I just thought that was such a beautiful thing. So what I, in my experience, in my experience working with people in the way that I, I work with them, there are very, very few weaknesses. What's really happening is they have these strengths. They have these things that are part of, in many cases, they're part of their kind of underlying personality. It's been with them, you know, it's been with them either since the beginning or in those really important developmental years, five to ages five to 10. And for the most part, those things have contributed to their success. Who am I to say to them, dial it back? You know, that because that thing has made them so incredibly successful. Like I'm I, I'm a demon I'm demonstrative. You're having an experience of a very demonstrative person. And and that has contributed to my success. It has made a difference in many cases. And there are moments where being demonstrative did not make the bigger difference. There are moments where being demonstrative, where I overplayed it, where I was stressed, where, it, where, where I misplaced my demonstrative way of being, and it didn't make a difference, you know? Um, and so, so I'm a big advocate for, like, let's just get weaknesses out of the conversation. Let's see where your strengths are working for you. Let's see where your strengths are being are slightly overplayed and they're getting in the way of you and someone else having a, a powerful conversation, a powerful negotiation. Let's, let's look at that. Let's, and let's develop an early warning system. So like, I know, I know where being demonstrative is going to start working against me because I know what my body does. I know what thoughts start running through my head, what dialogue I start having with myself when I'm stressed. And so I'll dial it back. So if I'm in a meeting with you, Mike, and you notice that I'm, I'm diagnosing less, like I'm coming up with less solutions and I'm asking more questions, or if I'm talking a lot less and listening longer, you know that I know my little early warning system is going off and I've made a conscious decision not to be as demonstrative as I usually am. <laughs> but that doesn't make it wrong. It doesn't make it yeah. ineffective. It's my superpower. Yeah. <laughs> Does that answer your question? It does. Um, and again, this was supposed to be quick hits, but that's what I love about talking to you is like, we, I could talk to you for hours. What influences your style? You have a style. Oh my God. Well, on a practical level, not wanting to look any shorter or smaller than I am. So I tend to, <laughs> I tend to wear, I tend to wear clothes that are less baggy because that'll make me look shorter and smaller. On a, on a serious note though, I, I am genuinely curious about style and, and fashion. I always have been. I, I'm I'm curious about how stylizing somebody can radically transform how that person feels about themselves mm-hmm. and how like the world experiences them. Like I, I just I'm fascinated. Like I put on some I put on a suit that somebody made for me that fits mm-hmm. so perfectly and it takes me to a different headspace. Like I feel ready to sit down, roll up my sleeves and work with somebody. Mm-hmm. And and I just I just am fascinated by that. And then and then there's a, you know, I'm getting meta again, but there's also, and this may sound self-deprecating, but I'm Jewish. We, we embedded self-deprecating. <laughs> stuff. Um, I also want to, 
I, I, I want to belong uh-huh. just like everybody else. And style is one way to be relevant. Yeah. You know, somebody a lot smarter than me once said to me, style is relevance. And it's just like, it really landed with me at the same time. And this is going to sound like a paradox. I really don't want to belong. And style is a way for me to express myself, irrespective of, of people's opinions or expectations of me, you know? So I just, I just kind of do my thing and it makes me feel really good and it, it gives me joy. And, and I have, I just have to trust that it's, um, it's an add on. It doesn't take away from people. It doesn't distract people. I just have to like believe in my heart that, you know, that I do it authentically. And I think you do yeah, pull it off authentically and you have a, a good sense of style. Well, I'm not wearing a suit today. I'm just, you know, <laughs> just wearing a tailored, I'm just wearing a tailored flannel shirt. You know, that's it. <laughs> um, and you said you were one of three siblings. Yeah, I have, uh, I have two older brothers. Uh, I'm the, I'm the baby in the family. Okay. Did you all serve in the military? No, no, I did not come from a military uh, family. And and I served in the Israeli army and no one in my family lived in Israel. No one in my family besides me became a resident of Israel. So I was a, I was a total, I was a total fish out of water. How does that happen? How does somebody, how does an American born Jewish kid with no military background experience, uh, come to live in Israel and serve in the army? Yes. Got it. Yeah. How, how does that happen? How does someone who considers themselves an American Jew, because you said you became an Israeli citizen and serve in their military. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, there's a number of ways. My way was puppy love. <laughs> I met a, I met a girl in Israel on a, on a trip to Israel. And uh, we, okay. uh, when I left Israel, we, we stayed in touch. We were, we were pen pals. And when I went off, you know, when I went off to school, we, we just, we stayed in touch and we, and, and over time we would talk about my coming back, my coming to Israel, establishing residency and being together. And I never can, and, and, you know, look, I was, I was in my early twenties. I had never considered the consequences of, <laughs> of my actions and I had never, I had never been in love before. So is most is most young men don't consider the consequences of their actions. They don't. They don't. They don't. And by the way, just for context, years later, my dad told me that he almost went to Israel to be with a girl and do the exact same thing. That. So as much as I, as much as I felt alone in this experience, years later, I learned that I, you know, that there is somebody out there in the world who, <laughs> you know, had a. I bet he was proud of you. I bet he was proud of you for taking the leap. I, I, I think. I don't know if pride is it. He was, he was curious. Yeah. I mean, my dad, look, my dad is always, my father's always been proud of me and he's always been, uh, and by the way, we've also had a chance to consult together before. So he's seen me not only as his, as his little boy, but he's seen me in consulting mode and he's always been very proud of that. He's also a very curious person himself. So he was, he's, yeah, he was very curious about my decision to do this. How long does it take to become a, a resident? <laughs> well, it's supposed to take longer, but I was there ver- during a very, you know, very difficult time. I mean, it's always it's always a volatile, so it's always volatile there. But this was a particularly volatile time. It was the second intifada, they, as they refer to it, and so I was fast tracked. They established, they were establishing my permanent residency. I was at university, I was at Tel Aviv University, and about, I'd say, two to three weeks after I touched down in Israel, I was told that I was going off to boot camp. <laughs> so so I was a, I was a boyfriend, wow. I was a student, and now I was about to become a soldier, which, by the way, is not a unique story over there. Everybody is, Everyone is something and something and something. You don't get to compartmental. To your point, it's compulsory service. So, so you're a student and you're a soldier. You're a professional and you're a soldier. There, you don't get to compartmentalize there. So that wasn't unique. What was unique is I didn't grow up in this culture. I didn't grow up thinking that this was my life. I didn't anticipate that this was going to happen. Um, I was insanely naive to think that I was going to be able to put off military service. And so it had like three weeks 
into being in Israel. And they said, here you go. You're going off to boot camp. And, and so I was in boot camp for about six months, which is pretty, pretty typical. And then I was given my, I was given my battalion and I was supposed to be based in the North, but, but conflict had really broken out between Israelis and Palestinians. And, um, and I, so I, I was based primarily in East, uh, East Jerusalem, um, at the time. And I was seeing active duty. Like I was seeing real conflict and, mm-hmm. um, ultimately, I mean, so I was in the service for just under two years. Mm-hmm. What cut my time short, uh, was I, I was wounded physically. Um, I was also wounded emotionally. Mm-hmm. So I took two shots to my right shoulder. Um, so my right shoulder doesn't work like mm-hmm. it, it used to, and it was going to make it very difficult for me to continue my service. Um, I was also emotionally wounded by the experience. So. I was shot. I was shot in East Jerusalem. I came out of that experience um, with trauma, with post-traumatic, you know, post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. And then about two weeks after that incident, my girlfriend at the time, who, by the way, was a very active, a very active advocate for Palestinian rights, Palestinian statehood. She herself was um, a Moroccan Jew. She was. She had a father who was Moroccan, a mother who was Israeli relate she identified as arab she was killed in a terrorist bombing in haifa so that was a that was a pretty traumatic time like in a three-week period just a whole lot of life hit me <laughs> yeah sorry at a very at a very young age yeah such a young age Stephen. uh well first i i'm incredibly grateful that you're willing to share that um yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the space. And all of that occurring in such a short period of time. And then how much longer were you in Israel? Was it just like a two-year window of time? About two weeks after Lee, my girlfriend at the time, was killed, um, I remember attending her funeral. And then about mm-hmm. about a week after the funeral, I, I left the country. Mm-hmm. And that was highly problematic. <laughs> Because if I had stayed in Israel, I would have received the treatment that I needed to deal with my grief and to deal with my post-traumatic stress. I, I, I'll go out on a limb and say that the, the Israelis are ahead of the game on dealing with those things. They have in, infrastructure in place to deal with post-traumatic stress long before you know they had the infrastructure here in this country, which is still... I would agree with that. And that, so then when you came home, you weren't a, a veteran of the U.S. military. so. Where how, did you just exist with no help, no apparatus? Like you said it. That's it. Uh, and very insightful of you to point that out. I was, I was on a raft without a paddle, and I had, I had, you know, look, I had parents who loved me and and wanted to take care of me, and I had a mother who wanted to do right by me, and she didn't know how to deal with it. And so typical, typical Jewish mom. She's like, let's just get Stephen back into school. As long as he finishes his education, he's going to be okay. And and there's some wisdom in that. You know, I went back to school and I finished I finished my undergraduate degree and and I didn't get the treatment that I needed. And so my you know my dealing with some of these issues were um, you know it came later in life and there were and there are consequences to that. I, I had setbacks. That I think you know it may not. There's causality and there's correlation, right? And I can't say that you know this caused a, a, some of the setbacks I've had in my life, but there there appears to be a correlation, and uh, mm-hmm. which is why I you know which is why I take it upon myself to um, to be with my grief and to be with my trauma every single day, and I'll do it and I'll do it for the rest of my life. It's why I'm an advocate for it. I think I kind of hinted at this earlier. Can I, can I, can I drift a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, uh, Mike Barnacle, he's a, a broadcaster. He's a writer. He wrote a piece about, I forgot who he's with, but he, you'll see him a lot on MSNBC and I promise I'm not getting political. This is not a political story. Uh, but he wrote a, he wrote a piece about president Biden just before the election. It was something like grief is his, like grief is his DNA or, Something like that, like um, 
Mm-hmm. Or yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Grief is the DNA to his humanity. Something, something like that. What he essentially was saying is that Biden doesn't naturally relate to everybody. Like we had, you know, some people had that experience of him. Boy, does he know how to relate with people? You know, some people say that. But his point was he wasn't born that way. Mm-hmm. But but he has experienced tremendous grief in his life. And grief has given him access to empathizing with people he wouldn't otherwise empathize with at times that he wouldn't otherwise empathize. Mm-hmm. When I read that, I saw I saw myself there. Like that's me. Like trauma. Why, why am I, why am I denying my trauma? Why am I downplaying my trauma? Why am I hiding my trauma? Why am I positioning as a weakness? It gives me an edge. It gives me access to empathizing with people who I otherwise wouldn't empathize with. Mm-hmm. You know, some, somebody can, uh, somebody can not show up at our meeting together. They can totally, you know, they can just totally not show and, 10 years ago, that would have thrown me off my game. I would have created a story in my head that that person doesn't respect me. They don't, they don't cherish our time together. Now I create a story that that person is dealing with things that I can't possibly understand. Mm-hmm. That there, there may be trauma there, that something may have happened mm-hmm. to their family. Yeah. You know, and during this, and during this time, I dialed that up to a 10, Absolutely. you know, during this pandemic, it's like, there's all kinds of stories that I can sit, tell in my head that gives me access to not judging that person, not being disappointed in that person, but sympathizing, having compassion and curiosity for that person. So I don't want to put my trauma to bed. I want to learn how to enable myself by, and I know enable has this kind of, you know, weird connotation, but I, I reclaim that word. I'm enabled by my trauma. So how lo- have you been back to Israel's? Great question. I, uh, my wife and I are planning a trip to, uh, to Israel, um, as, you know, at this time, uh, for two reasons. One, you know, while Israel does not define me, it does color me. And my wife wants to, she wants to know more about that part of my life. She wants to see the places I've seen. Mm-hmm. So we are going to Israel to retrace some steps together. And I also have, I have some clients in Israel and I want to, and I want to be with them. Now that we have, we have delayed that because of the current conflict. Mm-hmm. So this will be the first time you've been back there since that incident. This will be the first time um, that I've been back since that incident. Yeah. So it's 20 years. How are you going to work professionally while you're there and also process the unknown? Uh one step at a time, one day at a time. Um, that's a really, that's a really great question. I suspect that it's going to be messy. Yeah. And, you know, that's part of my journey. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have, uh, I've worked really hard the last 20 years at looking put together, being, being put together. And, and again, that's contributed to my success. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure being put together and being polished got me a couple, got me a couple of gigs. <laughs> you know, somebody, somebody's like, wow, that guy's got his, he's got his act together. We should work with them. So, <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not dismissing that outright. And I suspect that trying to be all put together and all perfect and refined has gotten in the way of making a connection with somebody at some time. And so, so messiness is a good thing. Being a little messy, it's, it's going to be messy. And, and I don't think my clients in Israel would be my clients if I if I hadn't been vulnerable and messy with them. I gotta, they would I probably them. understand um, more than other clients would, based on the nature of um, just being over there. They have, and being and being messy with them has given them an opening to say to me, Stephen, as much as you think you're not in our tribe, just because you were you spent most of your life in the United States and you were only here for a couple of years you're wrong. You know, we have a connection. And, and I can say the same for us veterans, uh, who I've had this conversation with lately. They said, no, 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 you're in our tribe too. You're not in a, you're not on a raft, uh, without a paddle. And, and I, but I had to get, I had to create the space with those folks to be able to say that. And I had to, I had to be a little messy 
I cannot thank you enough for being willing to share that. I'm fascinated and I want to hear from you. It doesn't have to be the next time we talk, but um, after that trip, I'd love to to talk with you about that if you're if you're willing yeah. to share. What um absolutely? Where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you or learn more about you? Yeah, uh, you can you can go to my my website, which is kind of just a, a landing page at this at this time. And like I said, it's a it's a referral business, but it exists. Yeah. Uh, can you spell that out? Yeah, it's Belanky. That's my last name: B E L E N K Y dot co not com but co pretty simple pretty simple this has been mike murphy with incredible learning experiences featuring stephen blanky today stephen thank you so much for your time absolutely thanks for having me incredible learning experiences is brought to you by your friends at proctor free an on-demand convenient and cost-effective online proctoring solution for education and corporate environments Elevate your credibility and reputation while providing convenient learning opportunities for your target audience. Learn more at proctorfree.com.